0: Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, open to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, we'll be finishing up this chapter today. And uh, two weeks from now, uh, we'll be moving on into chapter 3, which will take us to the end of September. And then we'll do chapters 4 and 5 in the month of October. Next Sunday, Bob Miller will be our, our guest speaker. And uh, so we'll be praying for him this week as he prepares um, for, to bring the message next week. I want to show you a picture I thought you might appreciate. See any familiar faces in that crowd there? Uh, Dr. Adams sent me that this week, and I just wanted you to be able to see uh, what he's a part of in these days. This is 61 of the about 150 or so uh, students that are being trained as pastors. And you know, I was thinking about that picture this morning, and who knows, the next pastor of Corinth Baptist Church could be right there in that picture. Uh, this is a beautiful thing to see men of God who've been called and who are being trained. Uh, for the ministry to which God's called them. I remember those days very fondly myself. And uh, often been thinking a lot about lately about getting some more training myself. Feeling quite overwhelmed by things these days. But that's okay. We'll get there. First John chapter 2. I'm going to finish this chapter up today. First John chapter 2. If you all stand with me in honor of God's word as we read. The Apostle John writes these things into the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no truth is of the lie. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father, and this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him at his coming Shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. You can be seated. Father, as we are seated together, I have one simple prayer this morning, Lord. God, I pray that you would remind us in this moment that we have only one true teacher in this place. And He is the Holy Spirit. He is the one who guides us into all truth. He is the one who gives us the strength to abide in the truth, to remain in the truth. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to see this morning what that truth is. That it is not relative, but it is fixed and perfect and available to all people at all times, in all places. So in this, among this people, in this hour, at this place, I pray your truth. Would be displayed clearly, and that your spirit would teach us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of John, we've been walking through the last several weeks, and we're going to continue this through the book through the month of October, uh, if the Lord will allow us to do that. John teaches us three tests of assurance. His whole point in this book is how do I know that I know that I know that what I'm believing in, professing faith in, trusting in, how do I know that it's real? How do I know that my faith is not just a pipe dream? How do I know that I know? We've talked about the fact that many Christians live in a place where they doubt their faith. They live in a place where there's a lack of assurance. And John is saying, it's not the will of God for you to live your Christian life without assurance. But he also writes to say to us, it's also not the will of God that you would live your Christian life in a false assurance. That you would live in such a way that you're believing something that's false. That you're trusting in a faith that won't save you. And so what is the faith that saves? 1 John 5.13 is the theme verse for this entire book. We'll get to it here in just a couple of months. And he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. That you may know that you have eternal life. And that word know there is Intimate, deep, concrete knowledge. I know that I know what I know. Well, what do we know? That's what we're going to get to this morning. Some of you guys are going, I don't know what I know. Well, I'm going to show you some things this morning I hope you know. First John five thirteen. And the question of the day is this. The question of the day is the next slide on the screen. How do I know if what I'm putting my faith in is really the truth or not? How do I know if what I'm putting my faith in is really the truth? Now, that's the key question today and the key question in this passage of Scripture. See, folks, we live in a day where our culture would teach us that truth is relative. In other words, what's true for me may not be true for you. Okay, so they'll say to you, oh, it's all right. You can put your faith in Jesus, but it's fine for me, too, if I want to put my faith in Buddha or if I want to put my faith in in the religion of Islam, if I want to trust in something else, there's kind of this all roads lead to heaven kind of mentality. No matter what you have believed, the truth in our society today says this. Whatever you believe, the most important thing about your faith is that it's sincere. So even if you think that God is a giant pink elephant, as long as you're really sincere about that faith, and folks, there are some crazy things out there right now, Go home and look up the word silenism and you'll see some folks that are basically putting their faith in a giant pink elephant. Except for theirs happens to be a penguin. I'm not making this up, folks. I'm not making this stuff up. Go home and look it up. Look up and You'll see what they're talking about. But they'll say this. as The most important thing about your faith is that it's sincere. So as long as whatever you believe, as long as you believe with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, as long as you're sincere in your faith, then you're good to go. All roads lead to heaven. But folks, that is not the truth of the Bible. If I were to preach that to you this morning, you need to cast me out as your pastor and you need to never come back to this church again. What the Bible says is there is only one faith that saves. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And while we see that as exclusivist language, people don't like that. They say, what do you mean Jesus is the only way? But he's the only way that's available to all people. He is the only way. It's a narrow way, folks. But that gate is available to all people who put their trust in Him. So what does this mean? If faith is truth is not relative, if, if, if the most sincere point about my faith and my and the truth of my life is not the level of my sincerity, then what is the most important part? I believe the Bible does teach there's a crucial point for your faith. And it's not the sincerity of your faith, folks. It's the object of your faith, it's the foundation of your faith. What are you trusting in? The question today is how do I know if what I'm trusting in is really real? How do I know if the truth that I claim to be staking my life on, my eternal life on, is really going to save me? How do I know at the end that it's all going to come down the way I want it to come down? That's what John's talking about. So how do we know that we know? First of all, The truth, and understand I'm talking about unchanging truth, concrete truth, absolute truth that is true for all peoples in all times, at all places, the truth of God that is not relative. The truth is revealed in its perseverance. Verses 18 through 20. The truth is revealed in its perseverance. How do I know that my truth is real? First of all, it lasts. It remains. We're going to get to more of that before we finish today. But here he begins to speak about two things that we might get confused about. So I want to address them. First of all, he speaks about, he says, Children, it's the last hour. Now this terminology, the last days, the last hours, I it's called the last hours, plural. It all means the same thing. And it's this idea. That when Jesus Christ, after he was crucified on the cross for our sins, and after he rose from the dead three late, days later, and after 40 days of teaching his disciples and preparing them for the mission on which he was going to send them, he ascended back into heaven and the last hour began. And the last hour that's talked about in the New Testament, and even back in the book of Joel when it talks about in the last days, the last hour of which he speaks here is he's talking about the time between when Jesus ascended back into heaven and the time when Jesus will return in all of his glory. And so we live in that time. It's also known as the church age. It's a, an age that is described throughout the New Testament and even back in the Old Testament. They were talking about this time in history in which we live and it is the last hour. Now some folks would say, well, it's been a really long hour. Jesus promised his return when he left and it's now been about 2,000 years. So where's he at, you crazy Christians? You talk about Jesus returning, but it's been 2,000 years. Where's he at? Guess what, folks? The Apostle Peter addressed this and in his epistle. First Peter, he talks about he talks about the fact that there will be those who will say, where is he? The world keeps going on just as it's always gone on. Where is he? Where's he going? When's he he going to come back? And they were doing this just 30 years after Jesus left. We're now 2,000 years removed and Peter's answer still remains the same. Peter said, God's not slow in keeping his promise. He's being patient with you, not willing that any should perish. Same thing Jesus said, and he said, gospel will be preached to all the nations, and then the end will come. Why has Jesus not returned right now in this moment? Because there are still people groups all over this world that have not yet heard the gospel. And the promise that Jesus made was all peoples will be given the gospel, all people groups, doesn't mean all individuals, but all people groups on the face of the planet will be given the opportunity to hear the gospel, and then the end will come. Folks, I'm going to tell you, I believe that could happen in our generation. Communication, what it is these days, satellite communications, radio, television, all the things that are being used to broadcast the gospel in these days, we could see the very end of the last hour within our generation. Even while about half the world today has little or no access to the gospel, it could happen very quickly. So we need to be ready. It is the last hour. We are living in it. He speaks there about, how do we know it's the last hour? He says, there will be Antichrists. Now, he uses it in the singular. He speaks about the Antichrist, and he also speaks about in the plural, Antichrist. Well, what does he mean there? The Antichrist has become a very popular name that's used. Tim LaHaye and all his Left Behind books talked about the Antichrist and who he would be and what he'd be like, and for years people have speculated about this. It's kind of interesting, we've made so much of this name Antichrist, but John is the only one that uses that term in the New Testament. Now, I do believe that it's the same guy that Paul was talking about to the Thessalonians when he talked about the, the man of lawlessness. In, the, in Thessalonians, you read about the man of lawlessness, and you can see that's the same individual. I do believe it's the same guy John was seeing in the vision in Revelation chapter 13, the Antichrist. But who is this guy? Well, first of all, his title... Describes exactly who he is. But don't get the wrong impression. When we use the term anti. If I say I'm anti something. What do I mean? I mean I'm against it right? But the Greek word anti. From where we get where we get this from. The Greek word anti has a dual meaning. One part of it has been lost in our language. It does mean against. It means that I'm against. If I'm anti something I'm against it. But in the Greek in John's day. It also meant not only am I against it. But I'm replacing it. I'm not just against it. I am trying to mimic it in a false way. So while there would be those who, back in the earlier part of our century, saw a man like Hitler or a man like Mussolini in the last hundred years, and they would say, surely that guy's the Antichrist. I mean, look at that guy. Look what he's doing, killing all these thousands of people. That's not the picture of the Antichrist of Scripture, folks. He will be a deceiver. And he'll look really good to a lot of people. And he'll be someone that many will follow. And the Bible says even true followers of Christ will be tempted to follow after him because there will be signs and wonders associated with him. And he'll do great miracles. And people will look at this guy and go, what a great leader he is. How charismatic he is. Surely this guy must be coming from God. The Bible says don't be deceived, folks. Don't be deceived. Be very careful. careful. When someone comes claiming the name of Jesus. But they're only claiming part. Of the Jesus who is revealed in the scriptures. He says many antichrists are already coming. John was already facing this in his day. In John's day there was a group called the Gnostics. Who he's referring to. He doesn't call them by name. They weren't given that name for another 200 years. But it had its roots here in John's day. This group called the Gnostics. And here was their deal. Theirs was a Jesus plus mentality. They said, yeah, put your faith in Jesus. Jesus, we want to talk a lot about Jesus. We want to claim Jesus as our Savior. But they said this, just having Jesus alone is not enough. You also need to have, according to the Gnostics, you also need to have this additional special knowledge, this revelation from God, this special spiritual experience that we've had. They kind of elevated themselves saying, come up here where we are you lowly people come up here where we are we've had this amazing experience with god and they were coming along to those in the churches saying you need jesus plus folks anybody that teaches you jesus plus as a means of your salvation is teaching you a false gospel if it's Jesus plus some special knowledge, if it's Jesus plus some special works, if it's Jesus plus anything, you've departed from the gospel that saves and don't do it. That's what we see among the Jehovah Witnesses today. It's a Jesus plus mentality. Of course, the truth of the matter, there's also a Jesus minus mentality. Because while we say Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, they will say Jesus is a Son of God, not the Son of God. A small change that has enormous implications if jesus is just a son of god that is a gospel that does not save jesus is the son of god who came into the world to save sinners by his death at the cross and so what is the faith that saves same thing in the mormon religion today they will claim the bible a few minor changes here and there and then they add unto it the pearl of great price and other writings It's a Jesus plus, but it's also a Jesus minus. They want Jesus, but they don't want all of Jesus. They want the part that fits with their scheme. And folks, lest we get too hard on the cults this morning, we can be guilty of the same thing. Sometimes I want a Jesus plus. I want to know what I have to do in addition to what Christ has already done. And the Bible says nothing There is no additional work, no additional knowledge, no additional training, no additional thing that you can do to earn your salvation. Your salvation was earned for you at the cross of Calvary. Trust in the Christ of the cross. Sometimes we want a Jesus minus. We want the Jesus of Bethlehem. We love the Christmas Jesus. Sweet little baby in the manger. Angels singing in the sky. Even like like to pretty up the manger and make it this nice little place of hay. And we forget that what Jesus was laid in was a feeding trough that wasn't clean. We like the Jesus of Bethlehem. And some of us even like the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount. We like the good teacher who will bring us these moral teachings and we look at him and we go, yeah, we love all these things and we look at him and of course we forget the fact that Jesus, what he was teaching there were things that we could never do. When he says love your enemies, you can't do that apart from the Holy Spirit's work in your life. And we like the Jesus who sacrifices for us. Most of us still like the Jesus of the cross. We like the idea of Of his sacrifice for us. But when we start to talk about a Jesus. Who is also. Fully God even as he was fully man who is a God not just of love and sweet things and puppies and lilies, and that's kind of our picture of Jesus. We forget about the Jesus who went into the temple one day and overturned tables and beat people out of there with whips saying, this is my father's house and you're destroying it. And we forget that if he is 100% God, he's also the God of wrath who says, sinners must receive condemnation apart from the blood of Christ in their lives. And we say, how in the world could, could, could a loving God ever send someone to hell? But the question of the gospel is, how can a just God ever allow any of us into heaven? And the answer is the, is the answer I've already given you through Jesus Christ. And it's not a Jesus plus, and it's not a Jesus minus. And if we don't move on, we're going to be here all day. Sorry, I get fired up about a few things. The truth is revealed in its perseverance. The truth is also revealed in its profession. So here's the question, guys. What do we have to believe in order to have the faith that saves? Because there's a lot of false gospels out there. And it's not just the prosperity gospel that's rampant in our culture today that says come to Jesus and he'll give you all the millions and multitudes and toys that you ever wanted. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ, folks. But there's a lot of subtle subtle false gospels that will deceive you so you look to the truth of the word of god the truth is revealed in its profession he speaks here in verses 21 through 23 first about denial he says anyone who denies that jesus is the christ any anyone who denies that jesus is the christ is denying the father jesus said, if you've seen me you've seen the father And to deny the Son, to deny Jesus being the Christ, the Savior of the world, who came into the world as the Son of God, fully God, fully man, to die on the cross for our sins so that we could have eternal life in Him. To deny that is to deny the truth that saves. And folks, you have that right and opportunity. But I beg you not to do it. Don't deny the truth that saves. So, what is the confession that saves? First of all, we don't reject the truth that Jesus is the Christ. But we confess the truth. What does that mean? It's the same word that he uses in 1 John 1 9 for confess. It's the Greek word homo legeo, which means this the same word. That we confess the same things about Jesus that God has revealed about Jesus in his word. And we don't get to pick it apart. Folks, if you don't want the Jesus who was born of the Virgin Mary, if you can't accept the virgin birth, then you don't get the Jesus of the cross. If you don't want the Jesus, you can't accept the Jesus who walked on water and raised people from the dead, then you don't get the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't want the Jesus who rose from the dead, then you can't have the Jesus who died on the cross. And if you don't want the Jesus who's returning once again to establish his kingdom in all of its glory, and all of its fullness, if you don't want that Jesus, then you don't get the Jesus who came into the world to save you from your sins. I hope you don't hear these as harsh statements, folks. But there is a gospel out there that will not save you, and there's only, there are many gospels out there that will not save you. There is only one gospel that will. So what are the elements of this confession? What what are the essentials of the Christian faith is what I'm really asking here. You're about to see them on the next slide. I believe these seven things, we can disagree about points and different things and denominational differences and all that. I believe these seven truths should be able to be agreed upon by all Christians. Now I'm not saying... We're not going to have disagreements over baptism and over gifts of the Spirit. We're not going to have disagreements over all manner of crazy things that we get wrapped up in. And I'm not even saying those things aren't important. There's a reason, folks, why Baptist is on the sign of this church. There's a heritage there. There's a belief there. I'm a Baptist not just by birth. I'm a Baptist by conviction. Because I believe we get it more right than the other guys. If I didn't believe that, why would I be here? I mean, I'm, just, I'm being honest with you guys. If I didn't believe that, why would I be here? And I'm not saying that the Charismatics and the Methodists and the Pentecostals get it all wrong. They get some things more right than we do. I just think this is, this is the faith that I'm convicted over. So what is this faith? I think whether you're Methodist, Pentecostal, any of those things, if you are truly a follower of Jesus Christ, you should be able to affirm these basic things. First of all, the Bible is God's word. Now I believe the Bible is truth without any mixture of error. This is how God has revealed himself to us and even more he's revealed his son to us through this word. The Bible is truth without any mixture of error. It's useful for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, for training us in righteousness that we might be fully equipped for everything God wants us to do. The Bible is God's Word. Secondly, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. As John said here, if you do not know the Jesus who is the Christ, the Son of God, who went to the cross for your sins, then you don't know the Jesus of the Bible. If you just know Him as a good teacher, or a prophet, or a holy man, you don't know the Jesus of the Bible. And that Jesus will not save you. He's a Jesus minus. Or in some instances, a Jesus plus. Third, people are sinners. Sinners. Why is that so crucial that we believe that people are sinners? That's one of the things, that's one of the doctrines of our faith, one of the teachings of our faith that our society rejects. Well, what our society would say, well, we're basically good people. When you find in the scriptures where it says that we're all basically good people, come and show it to me. My Bible says that none are righteous, not even one. That even our righteousness before God is like filthy rags. We are sinners separated from God because we have disobeyed and broken the law of God. And we are deserving of the punishment of God. But God decided to do something different. And so that becomes the next point. Salvation is by faith, by grace through faith in Christ. It's not of works, Ephesians 2 says, lest we would boast. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. There is no other name given under heaven by which we might be saved. This is the essential element of the Christian faith. Now we can differ over how the atonement works. We can differ over the processes of sanctification. We can get into a lot of stuff. But essentially this is it. Number five, Christ died on the cross as man's substitute and rose from the dead. If you do not believe in the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are not walking with the Jesus of the Bible. Again, please don't hear that as a condemnation. I'm condemning the faith system that would say that Jesus is less than the Jesus that's revealed right here. Don't buy into a Jesus minus or a Jesus plus. Number six, the Holy Spirit indwells all believers. Now we can get into differences on the gifts of the Spirit and all that stuff. I'm not here to talk about that today. If you want to know what I believe about that, we can sit down and talk. But I'm going to tell you this. The Bible teaches that every follower of Jesus Christ, every disciple of Christ, every child of God, as John talks about them, they have the Holy Spirit living within them. The third person of the Trinity is living within you if you are walking with Jesus Christ. This is not optional equipment. It's not like that there are some followers of Christ who have the Holy Spirit and others who don't. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't have Christ. You don't have the Christ of the Scriptures. And that faith will not save you. And finally, Christ will return. Now there's a lot of folks that would like to see this as optional. Can't we believe in the Jesus who died on the cross for our sins and not to talk about all this second coming stuff? First of all, why would you want to? Why would you want to? Why would you want the Jesus who went to the cross for you if you can't have the promise of what he wants to do for you for all eternity, which will begin when he returns again for his people? Why would you want that, Jesus, if what he offers for you is only going to last as long as this life? Why would you want it? I want something that lasts forever, folks. I don't think that's presumptuous. That's based on the promises of God, as you're getting ready to see in this next point. The truth is revealed in its promises, verses 24 and 25. Two promises that John speaks about here that we need to claim as Christians. We have a God who makes promises, and he has a God who always keeps his promises. God is the only person... Who can make promises and never have to worry about whether they will be kept or not. I can promise you something. I can promise you that in two weeks we're going to dive into First John chapter 3. We may never make it. But every promise of God is amen. He is faithful and true to his word. Because not only is he willing to accomplish his promises. He is fully, fully able. And so the promises, what are the promises? First of all, the promise of abiding. This is that word that we talked about last week in the abiding secret. John loves this word. 30 of the 40 times this word is found in the English Standard Version that I've been preaching from, 30 of the 40 times it's found in the English Standard Version of the Bible, John is the one using it. He loves this word abide. It's the Greek word "meno," which means to remain. It's a word that means not, not to abide by a set of regulations and rules and principles, but to abide within a relationship. To dwell with him. To remain in relationship with God. This is what he means by, by the promise of abiding. Those who remain in the gospel will remain with Jesus forever. What do I mean by that? He says, remain in what you heard from the beginning. Remain in what, if you, hear, what you heard from the beginning abides in you. Then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. What did, what did they hear from the beginning? The gospel, folks gospel of jesus christ here's the temptation because you may be looking at me at this point and going i don't really know what all this is about today Uh, let me show you a little bit of what it's about there's a lie in american christianity today that does this that says you're saved by the gospel you come and you stand on gospel ground trusting in the death burial and resurrection of jesus christ to save you from your sins that you come to the gospel and you claim Jesus by faith, and then you go on to other things. Then you go on from this place and you go on to works. You go on, not too much different from the Gnostics of John's day said, you go on to greater knowledge because you've got to have that greater knowledge of what you had in Jesus wasn't really real. You've got to add these works to your salvation to prove that what you have is really real. Folks, once again, we are not saved by works. Works are the evidence that we are saved. Any faith that says Jesus plus works, Jesus plus some special spiritual knowledge, some divine revelation is a false gospel. He says abide where you began. That's the truth of Christianity, folks. So you've come to the Gospel and you realize that Jesus Christ died for your sins and you trust Him by faith, you turn from your sins and you turn to your Savior, and you stay right there. Because the temptation is to depart. The temptation is to go to the Jesus Plus, to add works, to add secret knowledge, to add whatever you can, because there's this myth out there that says, "Well, surely Jesus can't be enough. I'm telling you today, Jesus is enough. Abide where you began. Remain where you started. That doesn't mean that you don't grow in Christ. But you grow upward, not away from. Remember Jesus talking about that house that was built on the sand? The storms came, the wind beat against that house, and what happened to it? It was flattened because it was based upon a false gospel, a false belief, a false Christ. But he says the one house that's built upon the rock when the winds come, storms of life blow in and beat against that house, what happens to it? It stands firm because it is abiding on the foundation on which it was created in the first place. So if you come here today and you're looking for what do I have to do in addition to faith in Christ in order to be saved? What's the rest of the story? There is no rest of the story, folks. There is no secret knowledge. There is no extra work. There is no special thing that you have to do. All that was done has already been done by Jesus at the cross. And if this sounds like Christianity 101, good, because it is. When I depart from this gospel, here's what you need to do. You need to fire me as your pastor, and you need to never listen to another word that I say. And I'm being dead serious. There's only one gospel that saves. And when you stop hearing that preached from this pulpit, I don't need to be your pastor anymore. I don't need to be a pastor anywhere because there are too many preachers today who are preaching a Jesus plus or a Jesus minus. If you start hearing that from me, first of all, I pray you come along and correct me. But second of all, I pray you come along and fire me because that's not what you need. Moving on, the promise of abiding... Short time. Number two, the promise of eternal life. Who has the right to make you the promise of eternal life? Folks, I don't have the right to promise you tomorrow. I don't have the right to promise you five minutes from now. It could all be done five minutes from now. I'm not trying to scare you or freak you out. I'm just trying to tell you this. I have no right to promise you anything. When I say to you two weeks from now, I hope we'll get into 1 John chapter 3, that's my hope and my intention, God may have completely other plans, and that's His prerogative. So who has the right to make you the promise of eternity? God Himself. He is the only one who has the right to make you the promise of eternity, because He is the only one that can keep that promise. And the promise is based on the gospel truth. The promise of eternity is based on the truth of the gospel. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have what? Everlasting, eternal, never-ending life. This is the promise of God that's based upon the truth of the gospel. You do not have the promise of eternal life apart from this gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is revealed in the scriptures. I don't care what your spiritual experience has been. I don't care what secret knowledge you think you possess. I don't care what divine revelations you think that you've received. If you don't have this Jesus, you don't have the Jesus that will save your soul and dwell with you for all eternity, which means you've got nothing. Christ said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Please don't walk away from here. Please don't walk away from here feeling condemned today. The only thing that I would desire to condemn today is the spirit of the Antichrist. A Christ replacement that would steal your heart, mind, and soul from the truth that will save you for all eternity. Two more things in a very short time. The truth is revealed in its person, verses 26 and 27. He speaks here about an anointing, and about a teaching, about a teacher more intently. I believe he's talking about the Holy Spirit that indwells all believers. That's the anointing, the Holy Spirit that indwells all believers. That's the person that he's speaking at. And you go, well, where did you get that from? I don't see Holy Spirit there. Look back at verse 20. In verse 20 he says, but you have been anointed by who? By the Holy One. I believe this is a direct reference to the Holy Spirit. Again, the Holy Spirit indwells all believers. When you trusted Christ by faith, The Holy Spirit came to live within you. That means the God of the universe, Christian, the God of the universe came to dwell in you and to empower you for everything that he would have you to be and to do. So your Christian life is not lived in your own power, but he's made perfect in your weakness. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the anointing that John is talking about here. We hear that word anointing. We go, that sounds like a really weird word. And we start to get weird pictures in our minds of oil poured on our heads and strange things happening. This is the reality for every believer that you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, empowering you to live the Christian life. And to dwell with God forever. And he is our teacher. Folks, let me tell you something and again please don't be offended by this, but I I want you to get this. You don't need me. That's what John's teaching here. I am not a necessary element of your Christian experience as your pastor, as the man who stands before you and teaches God's word every week. You hear me. You don't need me. If you're living codependent Christianity where you come in every Sunday and you expect the preacher to dump out the truth of God on you like a sponge and you'll just soak it up and live it out the rest of the week and then you come back and your sponge is dry and you expect the preacher just to come and dump it out on you again and and that's the way you live your Christian life. You're missing out on the joy of the Christian life, which is this this fact. You don't need anyone to teach you. That doesn't mean that I'm telling you, don't ever come back here and we preach again doesn't mean that I'm telling you quit your Sunday school class. You don't need anyone to teach you. What I'm saying is I am not a necessity for you to know the truth of God that will save your soul. The Holy Spirit is your teacher. God has put within you the teacher That will open up and illuminate the word of God to you. That doesn't mean that you'll understand everything that you read. But he'll help you to understand it as you study God's word. As you meditate upon these things. I read this this week and there were two things I didn't know. What is he talking about when he says antichrists? What is he talking about when he's talking about this anointing? So I prayed and I studied. And the Holy Spirit of God taught me. And that's what I'm trying to bring to you i'm saying to you don't live codependent american christianity where you come in as the sponge expecting to soak up what the preacher has and that that will do you for the week dive into the word of god for yourself i beg you i beg you to do that to dive into the word of god for yourself to seek the things of god for yourself to grow up in christ because when that happens in this church folks when we begin living day-by-day day Christianity where this bread becomes our spiritual food day in and day out and not just on Sundays and Wednesdays when we're in our small groups and our Sunday school classes. When we start living the life of God abiding in Christ day in and day out, then we can come here and you won't expect to come here and be the spiritual buffet. You'll come here and just look for some dessert. Because you've already feasted for the week. And you won't come in here looking to be filled up. You'll have already been filled. And you'll come here to go to overflowing. To, to have something to take out to a lost and dying world. God, that, guys, that is my heart for this church. Because you don't need me. now I'd like you to keep me around. But I don't want you to live in codependent Christianity with me. I want you to seek God for yourself because you have everything within you, child of God. Hear me. He has put everything within you that you need. And so trust Him. Don't put your faith in a pastor. Don't you dare put your faith in a pastor or a Sunday school teacher or some other Christian that you think has arrived at some level way beyond you. I'm not saying we shouldn't be there to encourage each other and to build one another up. I'm not saying that there aren't things... That you can take away from this message this morning. That will help to edify your Christian life. But you don't need me. You have the Holy Spirit. And that's more than enough. Finally. With the no time I have left. The truth is revealed in its persistence. Now if you look at point one and point five. And you think he's saying the same thing. You got it. You got it, hook, line, and sinker. I repeat myself because John repeated himself. The truth is revealed in its persistence, in its perseverance. The truth that is true and will remain and will abide forever is the truth that continues. He said of these antichrists, they proved they weren't of us. In other words, they proved they weren't of Christ when they departed from us. If your faith departs from you, it's not the true saving faith and you don't want it in the first place. And if you find yourself here this morning with a faith that seems to be departing from you, I'm saying to you, come to a faith that will persist. Come to trust in the Jesus of the Bible that's not a Jesus plus or a Jesus minus. Stop trusting in work, stop seeking those spiritual experiences that would add an addition to these things and trust Jesus Christ. Faith that's real and true is the faith that persists. And so he speaks of the return of Christ. Jesus said, everything in this world is falling apart. I'm paraphrasing here. Falling apart. Everything is changing. Everything will one day be not like it is now except for one thing. He said, my word abides forever. Forever when Christ returns, folks, the question that John leaves us with here is this. How will he find us? How will he find you, child of God? He asks you that question not to discourage you, but to help you to live a courageous Christian life. When we pray, come soon, Lord Jesus, and we expect his return, we are doing that because we love him and because we want to live for him expectantly. And so we expect the return of Christ. In the meantime, we live in that expectancy. So that when he returns, we'll hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. Corinth Baptist Church, let me take a soapbox for 30 seconds and then I'll put it away. I have some concerns for our church in these days. I know I've only been your pastor for three weeks, four weeks, however long it's been now. But I have some concerns for us that I want to talk with you about tonight. If you thought the pastor chat tonight was to come and get to know your pastor, folks, I've been here seven years. If you don't know me by now, take me out to dinner. I'll take a free meal anywhere I can get it. We're going to come tonight and talk about some things that I believe we need to take some steps of faith. Here's some things that concern me, folks. We have $300,000 in the bank right now. We bear that as a badge of honor and pride, and it is a plague upon your pastor's soul daily. But as if Christ returns in this moment, I believe one of the questions he'll ask us is, what were you all planning to do with that $300,000 that I gave you? What were you planning to do with that? There were people in your community. If nothing else, you should have spent that money and, and fed the hungry you should have clothed those who didn't have clothes. Do something with that money, folks, because if, we, if Christ returns and we're sitting on a small fortune, I believe He's going to say to us, what were you doing? I'm going to talk about that tonight. I don't want to scare you. I want you to come. We're going to learn to talk with one another and I'm going to present some things and then come Wednesday night we're going, to take some, we're going to take a vote. I believe God speaks to his church. Do not hear your pastor saying this is what we are going to do. Hear your pastor saying this is the direction that I'm leading. I want us to spend some significant money in the next two months to take care of some significant issues that have held this church back for far too long. I believe firmly that God put Corinth Baptist Church in the middle of a cornfield in McQuady, Kentucky a long, long time ago for a distinct purpose and it was to reach the people of Breckenridge County. It was not to squabble over the kinds of issues that we've been dwelling on for the last several years. So come and let's talk. And guess what? You can yell and scream at me if you want to. I'll be all right. I'm not challenging you. I'm just saying to you, I'm at the place in my walk with Christ right now When you called me, you called. This is the mistake you might have made. <laughs> this is what you get when you call a youth pastor as your pastor. Youth pastors don't like to dream, we like to do. And we can sit around here and dream for years about buildings and facilities. I've watched us do it for 10 years. This church has been talking and dreaming and talking and dreaming. It's not bad. But if all we have to show our Lord when he returns is some building plans and a big bank account, we've missed it, folks. And I don't want to miss it. My ministry's too short and so is yours. We're like a vapor. We're like a mist here today and gone tomorrow in this grand scheme of eternity. And we better make our mist count for something. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So if I've scared you away, I'm sorry. But I invite you to come. I challenge you to come. Let's talk about some things and let's take some steps of faith. If this is not the will of God for us, what I'm going to talk with you about tonight, then God will make that clear through his church. And then the question will become, what do we do now? Because I can guarantee you this, this is not one pastor that's just going to sit around and do nothing. I told you when you called me as your pastor, I'm going to sermon. I'm here to do three things. Preach the word of God faithfully care for the body of Christ here in this place, and to lead. So let's talk about that tonight. If any of you show up. So Paul ends with these words that relate to what John's talking about. He says, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And so I encourage you, here in this room, every individual that's hearing my voice right now, take the test. What are you believing in? Is your faith firmly grounded in the Jesus of this revealed, in the pages of this holy book? Or do you have a Jesus plus or a Jesus minus right now? Understand folks, Jesus plus and Jesus minus will not save you. You can make Christ in your own image and he will be an idol for you and you can make a Christ that seems palatable to you and you can tear out whatever pages of this that you don't agree with or don't like. But if you do that, you are risking your eternal life. But the promise is if you'll trust Him, if you'll trust Him, take Him at His word. Believe in the Son of God, the everlasting Son of God through whom all things were created that one day He stepped out of heaven and stepped into the belly of a young girl named Mary who was a virgin. And He was born into the world and laid in a feeding trough. And He lived on this earth for about 33 years. And He grew up just like we grow up, but He was God in the flesh. And he spent three years with his disciples training them for the mission to which he was equipping them for. And then he went to the cross for your sins. He who knew no sin became sin for you so that you might become the righteousness of God in him. And then he not, didn't stay dead, folks. He rose from the grave. If that's your Jesus, the same Jesus who right now is seated at the right hand of God and he is interceding for you. If that's your Jesus, then take the promise of eternal life. And if that's not your Jesus, then bring your Jesus to this altar and lay him down. Burn him up and run to the only Christ who saves. That's the gospel, folks. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, help us. Help us to examine our faith. What are we trusting in? And God, if we have a Jesus plus or a Jesus minus this morning, I pray that we would be given the strength to lay that down. But I pray even more intently this morning for those who know no Jesus at all, who have never trusted Jesus Christ, the Savior of their souls who are still bound by sin and the death will, that will come as a result of it. God, I pray in this moment that they would trust Christ. Not a Jesus of their own making, but the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus who really lived on this earth 2,000 years ago. And who in this moment is pleading with them, for them, for the God of the God of the universe, praying for us, interceding for us, empowering us to take steps of faith, to be the people of God, the children of God, not just to talk about it. God, I pray that if you would open blind eyes and deaf ears this morning, if you would take stone cold hearts and replace them with hearts of flesh that beat for you, God, if that kind of a work is happening here this morning, I pray we'd respond. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing a song together. There's nothing holy about a time of invitation other than it may be a holy moment for you. Step out from where you are. Come to this altar and pour out your heart before God. Lay down the Jesus Plus and the Jesus Minus and take Christ at his word for who he is. If you don't know Jesus Christ, it would be my great honor and privilege this morning to share Christ with you, to talk with you about what it means to know the Christ of the Bible and to walk with him and to have the full assurance of faith that results in eternal life. This is a time of response. and we invite you as we sing this song together to respond.